Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 1. Today we begin a new series. It's a six-part series on the book of Genesis. And I'm calling this series Anticipation. When we think about November and December, we are in a state of anticipation. We're looking forward to Christmas. And as, as Christians, we're looking forward to the celebration of, of the coming of Christ. And what we're going to do for the next six weeks is we're going to look at how the coming of Christ was anticipated through the lives of six individuals in the book of Genesis. I'm really excited about this series and, and what we're going to learn together. It's really important for us to understand the first book of the Bible to really understand the rest. Genesis is so foundational, and, and so it's really important to study Genesis. Second, this is going to be about the lives of real people, real people with real problems, people who make real mistakes, who have real joys and, and, and triumphs and tragedies and, and everything that real life brings with it. So we can learn a lot from looking at the real lives of, of people, both positively and negatively. And then also what we're going to see is that Christ is right there in the first book of the Bible. That every story in the Bible, really it all points to the Savior. And so we're going to look at how Christ was anticipated, how the coming of Christ, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, was anticipated through the six lives that we're going to study in this anticipation series. The first life, is Adam, which is really about, his story is about tragedy and promise. Now, usually I, I read a specific text, but I'm going to be drawing on lots of texts throughout three chapters today, so we're not going to read one, we're going to read a bunch as we go along um, together in the course of the message. But let's begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, as we embark upon a new study today, Father, we pray that your Spirit would really bless this study to our understanding and to our application. Father, we know it's so important to really understand what's happening in Genesis, really in order to, in order to really understand the rest of your word. And so we pray that you would take what we learn over the next six weeks and use it to really enrich the rest of our understanding of your word. And Father, we know that we can learn a lot through studying the real lives of people, um, both the, the, the mist their mistakes and sins as, as well as the, the positive things about their lives. But Father, most of all, we know that all of Scripture, Old Testament and New, is about a Savior. It's all about our need for a rescuer and, and your provision 
of a rescuer. And so, Father, most of all, we pray that we would see Jesus in this series. We, we pray that we would see how our Redeemer, how our Savior was, was right there at the very beginning of your word. Lord, help us to see Jesus. Draw our hearts closer to him. We ask it in his precious name. Amen. In Orson Welles' classic 1941 film, Citizen Kane, Orson Welles himself stars as Charles Foster Kane, a newspaper tycoon who came from nothing, gained everything, and then lost it all. There are a lot of similarities between Cain's story and the story of, of, of Adam, the tragic life of, of, of Adam. What can we learn from this life? Um, what is it that is there for us to, to grab onto and, and apply and take away from Adam's life? And is there any good news from his life? Is there any hope? Is there any gospel that we see through the the life of Adam? Let's talk about all of that today. And the first thing that we see really in in Adam's story is we see paradise. Paradise. Everything that Adam was given was a gift from God, just like us, which is what makes sin all the more heinous and, and monstrous, right? Is that, you know, it's, we're, we, we have nothing, we're given everything by God. And, that, and, and to, you know, to sin against our own maker, our creator, the, the one without whom we have nothing, that's really what makes sin so awful. But, you know, everything Adam had, just like us, came as a gift, and he was given so much. First of all, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. It's interesting that, that throughout chapter 1 of Genesis, as God's creating all these different things in creation, he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then he gets to human beings and he says, it was very good. And then he makes it clear that there is something about human beings that is fundamentally different from every other part of his creation, and that is that we are created in his image. In, in Genesis 1, in verses 26 and 27, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. What does it mean, really, to be created in the image of God? It means that as human beings, we, we possess certain God-like capacities that, that no other part of creation possesses. The ability to, to have to experience complex emotions and, and intellectual abilities and, and the ability to reason and to create, and most importantly, the ability to love God. 
We were created with, with, to be in perfect harmony, to be in a relationship of love with our Creator, to, to love Him in the way that no other creature can, can love Him, and also we're, we're given the ability to, to love one another in a committed way. And so God gives to Adam and Eve the gift of marriage, Genesis 2. Then the man said, this is the last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so God gave them the gift of marriage. He gave them the gift of children. He tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And then he gives them the, the gift of nourishment. We see also in chapter 2 that out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke says this about the Garden of Eden. He says this orchard is both aesthetically pleasing and practical. Life in the garden is represented as a banqueting table good for food and delightful to the eye. Now now notice that in all these things, God goes over and beyond. He does things far beyond what are just necessary for our survival, right? I mean, God could have, think about it, God could have created the ability for us to be nourished with food without giving us taste buds for food to taste good. But He wants it to be pleasurable as well. God could have created uh, the gift of sexuality simply for procreation. But He doesn't do it simply for procreation. He makes it something that is pleasurable as well. And so in, in all these things, God is just, He's going above and, and, and beyond. He gives us all that we need and so much more. And we also see in chapter 2 and verse 9 something about two trees that were in the midst of the garden. We'll talk about the second one in a moment, but let's focus on the first one now, the tree of life. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and they they could take as much as they wanted from this tree. Proverbs describes the the tree of life as like righteousness. The fruit of, of, of the righteous is a tree of life. It talks about the tree of righteousness as desires fulfilled, a desire fulfilled is a tree of, of life. And, and then it says a gentle tongue is a tree of life. The tree of life really was everything that makes life flourish. Everything good. Everything that celebrates and heals and, and enhances life and enables life to flourish. That was the tree of life. And God says you can take as much as you want. Take as much as you want. But tragically, they choose to focus on the second tree, the one tree that was forbidden to them, the tree of the, of the knowledge and good and evil. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But listen, this is what makes sin so tragic. This is what makes sin so utterly tragic. Because what's happening when we sin? Every time we choose to sin, what are we choosing? We're choosing to bypass so much that is life-giving and good. 
God says, take as much as you want from the tree of life. Everything that's good, you can have all that you want. The only thing I don't want you to take is the thing that's going to harm you. So why do we do it? We do it because we think sin is going to bring us pleasure. But we're bypassing that which will bring us true pleasure in favor of that which in the end will bring us nothing but pain. We're bypassing a banquet in favor of sugar-coated poison. We're bypassing a life-giving fountain of living water in order to drink from a rusty, toxic well. Which is exactly what God says in Jeremiah 2.13, right? He says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Now this is why sin is so tragic. Because it's not just that it's bringing unnecessary pain into our lives, but it's ca- it causes us to miss out on so much that is good. I was reading this week, and I'm reading the Bible, it's kind of a one-year Bible reading plan, and one of the Psalms this week that I was reading every day has an entry from the New Testament, um, the Old Testament, and then from Psalms and Proverbs, but this week I was reading Psalm 103, and Psalm 103, 5 says that the Lord satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. God is not interested in withholding anything that's good. Just that which brings us harm. But that's what they chose. And so instead of paradise, there was paradise lost. Now, let's look at chapter 2 and verse 9 again, and let's focus on the second tree. He says, in addition to the tree of life, that was in the garden, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What's up with that? What's, what's, what's that tree all about? Well, up until this point, Adam and Eve, have, they're not only innocent of sin, but they have no, no clue, no knowledge, no experience whatsoever with, with sin. It's, it's like something that is completely foreign to them, which is... You know, that's what we should want, right? Paul says in Romans 16, I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You know, young people, children, listen to me. Don't think that you have to go out and experience sin in some way in order to find fulfillment in life. You don't. Sin is anti-fulfillment. It's ultimately anti-pleasure. It's, it's life-destroying and, and pleasure-destroying. You know, we, we want to stay as far away from it as we can. Paul says, you know, we, what we should desire is to be innocent as to what is evil. You know? Now, of course, in a fallen world, it's impossible for us to be completely innocent as to what is evil because we're surrounded by evil, right? But that was not the case with Adam and Eve. They, they really did have no knowledge of, of, of evil. And this is why, incidentally, when they do sin, they realize, and they, it says they, they realize they were naked. Well, see, up until that point, the very thought 
of, of abusing or misusing God's good gift of sex, that, that, they had never even thought of such a thing. Never even occurred to them. And, and suddenly, all kinds of things begin to, to occur to, to, to them. Um, and so, the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil is something, it's, it's a knowledge and it's a power that is appropriate only for God. Only for God. And this is why God warns them in, in chapter 2. It says, the, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now we see a couple of things here. In these verses, first of all, this presumes our ability to choose, right? We were not created as robots. We're not automatons. I mean, we're given the ability to make moral choices, and furthermore, we're held accountable for our choices. Okay, so we see that, and we also see just the just the amazing, lavish, generous goodness of God. What does He tell us? says you can eat of every tree in the garden except the one that will hurt you. And so God just provides, you know, just, just over and above. We, we don't have to sin in order to get our needs met. But they do. And what is, what is their first instinct when they do? It's to hide. To hide. After they, they, they eat the tree of the, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what, what happens? And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, how irrational is this? I mean, to think that they could really do this, that they could really hide from an omniscient God who knows everything, who, who sees everything. I mean, but sin makes us stupid. <laughs> that's what it does. And it's just completely irrational, but that's what they attempt to do. They, you know, we're going to try to hide from God as if that were really possible. And then the blame game begins. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. So it's all Eve's fault, right? Yeah, the woman you put here with me, she did it. She gave it to me, forced it on me. And and then Eve joins in. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. See, what we're seeing here is just an utter failure to take responsibility for their own actions. Adam's like, Eve made me do it. Eve says, The, the devil made me do it. You know, they're both, they're both saying, Hey, listen, somebody else did this. They made us do it. We're, we're really the victims here. Does that sound familiar? That's the culture that we're living in. There's a, there's a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon that really captures perfectly 
this sort of culture of victimization that we, that we live in today. In this cartoon, uh, Calvin, who's a little boy, is walking along with his friend Hobbes, who's a, a tiger. And, and so Calvin uh, says to Hobbes in this cartoon, he says, nothing I do is my fault. And Hobbes just sort of scratches his whiskers, you know, when he hears that one. But then Calvin explains, my family is dysfunctional and my parents won't empower me. Consequently, I'm not self-actualized. My behavior is addictive functioning in a disease process of toxic codependency. I need holistic healing and wellness before I'll accept responsibility for my actions. To which Hobbes responds, one of us needs to stick his head in a bucket of water, <laughs> a bucket of ice water. The strip ends with Calvin walking on saying, I love the culture of victimhood. Hey, listen, you know what? I don't know what sins you're struggling with. We're all struggling with different sins today. But I do know this. Until you man up or woman up or boy up or girl up and say, I am responsible for my own sin, you're never going to be able to deal with it. As long as it's your spouse's fault or your parents' fault or, you know, the people that you work with, it's all their fault. Listen, as long as it's on somebody else, you can never have victory. Victory and healing begin when you say, it's on me. It's me. And they're, they're not doing that. And things are an utter mess at this point. So what does God do? Does he just give up on them? He could have. But instead, he, he gives them a promise. We see the, the promise of paradise restored. Look at Genesis 3 and verse 15. This is really the first prophecy of the coming of Christ. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, when he talks here about Eve's offspring, in Hebrew, this is singular. Singular. Not offsprings. Offspring. Not many seeds. One seed. God is saying to Satan that a specific descendant of the woman is going to crush you. Look at the term bruise. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. The key thing here is the location of the blow. Because God is saying to Satan, you're going to deliver a painful blow to the heel of Jesus but he is going to deliver a mortal blow to your head. He's going to crush your head. How is he going to do it? How is the Savior going to eventually crush Satan beneath his feet? He does it. God does it by becoming a human being. Tonight we're going to look at Romans 5 and we're going to talk about how Christ is like a, a second Adam 
the first Adam made a mess of things. Okay? The second Adam made it possible for us to be redeemed because God, God becomes a human being and unlike the first Adam, He lives the perfect life that none of us can ever live so that on the cross He can die vicariously. He had no sin of His own. He took our sins upon Himself on the cross, paid the penalty that we should have paid died the death that we deserve to die and rose again so that we could have life eternal. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 says, but we see Him, Jesus, who for a little while, that's the incarnation, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. That's what our Savior did. Jesus rescues us from death by taking death upon Himself. He rescues us from sin by taking sin upon Himself. He rescues us from a sin debt that we could never pay by taking it upon Himself and paying it all with His own blood. And we see the beginning of the prophecy of the blood of Christ. Beginning in, and we see it in verse 15, and then we see it again in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now here we just see the grace of God, right? In refusing to give up on the objects of his love. I mean, think about it. God creates a perfect world. He gives them everything. They blow it. They mess it up. I mean, God could have just said at that point, like in the words of the old Cole Porter song, let's just call the whole thing off. Let's end it right here. But He doesn't do that. In His grace, He pursues them, right? He come, when they try to hide from Him, what does God do? He comes after them. He, he pursues them. And then he, he provides for them, provides garments for them. But out of, out of what? A bunch of fig leaves? No. That's what they tried to do. No, God provides garments of skins and clothes them. But what does that involve? It involves blood. It involves pain. It involves sacrifice. It involves the taking of life. Animals had to be killed so that this could happen. And see, God right here is beginning to make the point that sin costs a life. That's what God is doing throughout the Old Testament, throughout all of the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. As all of these animals, lambs and everything, are, are, are killed as sacrifices. That theme winds all the way through the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and culminates in what? The sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice, the sacrifice that every other sacrifice pointed to, the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It starts right here. You know... He's making the point in clothing them with the skins of animals that, listen, sin cannot be covered by some cheap and easy process. 
sin is so dark and so serious and so evil that no cheap and easy process is going to cover it up. It's going to take blood. It's going to cost a life. It's going to take sacrifice. But all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, not one of them could truly, truly cover sin. They could only point to the one who could. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. And so one day, when Jesus comes on the scene and John the Baptist sees him for the first time, what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how were people in the Old Testament saved? The same way we're saved. Through the blood of Christ. No one has ever been saved apart from the blood of Christ. They look forward to the coming of the Messiah. We look back to His sacrifice, but, but no one could be saved apart from the blood of, of Christ. And that leads us to another question about Adam. Was Adam saved? I believe he was. And I think the evidence of that is, is seen in Genesis 3.20. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Eve means life. Life. Life giver. The very fact that Adam gives her this name is really a statement of faith. That, that he has heard and believed in God's promise of the Redeemer who was going to come and who was going to crush Satan. This is really a statement of faith that Adam has heard that promise and believed in that promise. You know, what about you? It's interesting that when God comes and seeks them after they try to hide, what does He say? Where are you? Where are you? Do you, do you really think God was seeking geographical information about their location? I don't think so. God knew exactly where they were and God knew exactly what they had done. Where are you is a question to draw them out and to get them to think. If you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, I, I just want to tell you, you know, you're not, we've all got a sin problem. All of us. Every, every one of us has got a sin problem. And we can't deal with it. We can't cover it up with the fig leaves of our own self-righteousness. You know, we can't cover it up with our good intentions. We can't cover up our sin problem with our new resolutions to do better and to try harder. We need a Savior. We need a Savior. And that Savior has been provided for us. 
turn to Jesus. Trust in Him. Trust in His finished work. It's there for you. Receive the free gift that He provides. If you're here, you're here and you are a Christian, where are you? Where are you in your relationship with God today? Because I can promise you, if your relationship with God today is not what it was in the past, I can promise you, friend, God, God didn't move. He did not pull back from you. If anybody pulls away, it's us. Where are you in your relationship with God today? It's time to come home. It's time to renew that relationship. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the Redeemer that has been provided. And Father, I pray for anyone here who's never turned to Jesus and trusted in Him. I pray that you would enable people right now to see the Savior and to trust in the Savior, that you would open hearts to respond to the good news of the gospel. Father, I pray for believers here today. Father, if, if our relationship with you is not as intimate, not as close, not, as, not what it used to be, Lord, we, we know that, that we're the ones who have moved. And Father, we pray for renewal. We pray for revival, for the fire of your Holy Spirit to burn brightly in our lives once again, for you to restore to us the joy of our salvation. As we just reflect before the Lord, if you would say today, I want to trust in Christ as my Savior. You know, the door is open for you to do that. You can do it right where you're seated. Call, call to Him. Lord, I need you. I can't save myself. But I believe that, that you became a man, lived the perfect life that I could never live, died for my sins upon the cross, rose from the dead, and right now I place myself completely in your hands. I rest totally in what you have done for me. You know, if that's the cry of your heart, tell that to the Lord today. And Jesus tells us that when we make that decision, it's not something that we keep to ourselves. If it's real, we'll acknowledge it before others. And so in a moment, we're going to stand. And as we stand to sing, if you're here and you're saying today, I've decided to follow Jesus. I want to invite you just to slip out from where you are. As others stand, they'll gladly make way for you. You come. Or if you're here today and, and you would, would say, I want to be a part of this church family, we want to invite you to come. Or if you've got a need in your life and you need someone to pray with, we invite you to come. So, Father, we give you now this time of, of decision. Father, may definitive decisions be made today. For anyone who's trusting in Christ as Savior, Lord, give them the grace to make this the day of publicly confessing you. Lord, for those that you're leading to be a part of this church family, may they say, 
today are going to follow your will. Lord, for those who need renewal, Lord, would you work in hearts to, to say, I'm renewing my relationship with the living God. Lord, work in the hearts of your people, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father, and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I could help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.